Welcome to the AJHP podcast series. The American Journal of Health System Pharmacy is the official journal of the American Society of Health System Pharmacists, an association of pharmacists committed to helping patients make the best use of medications. For more information about AJHP, please visit www.ajhp.org. Lori Justice, Associate Editor of the American Journal of Health System Pharmacy, speaking with Dr. Candace Garwood of Wayne State University and Harper University Hospital, which is one of the hospitals of the Detroit Medical Center. Dr. Garwood is co-author of a paper that explores the question, is there a role for fondaparinux in perioperative bridging? This paper will be featured as an ahead-of-print article on our website before its print publication in an upcoming issue of AJHP. Dr. Garwood, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Could you give us an overview of your health system and your role in the anticoagulation clinic there? Yeah, the Detroit Medical Center is an eight-hospital system that makes up the Detroit Medical Center. And within the DMC, there are four pharmacist-run anticoagulation clinics. When you combine the patient population of all four of those anticoagulation clinics, we service over 750 actively managed patients. The Harper University Anticoagulation Clinic is where I practice, and we service the largest group of patients out of all four of the clinics. The other co-authors on the paper um, practice at Sinai Grace Hospital Anticoagulation Clinic and in the Detroit Receiving Hospital Inpatient Internal Medicine Service. Before we talk about fondaparinx specifically, could you give us some background on the subject of perioperative bridging? Yes, perioperative bridging is performed by administering a short-acting anticoagulant during the interval that the INR is subtherapeutic due to warfarin's discontinuation in an anticipated upcoming surgical procedure. The intention for bridging is to reduce the time that a patient is not therapeutically anticoagulated, and so this would minimize their thromboembolic risk. Typically, the time frame extends somewhere between 10 to 14 days that you would need to bridge a patient surrounding a procedure. Over the years, there's been accumulating evidence that supports perioperative bridging when uh, warfarin has to be discontinued for a procedure, but it really wasn't until about 2008 when the CHESS guidelines came out with the first chapter on perioperative management that we had a guideline that gave us kind of a little bit more clear direction on how to conduct bridging. So the 2008 CHESS guidelines recommend both low molecular weight heparin and unfractionated heparin for use in perioperative bridging. Typically, Unfractionated heparin is used on the inpatient side where low molecular weight heparin is used on the outpatient bridging side. How did you become interested in writing an article about the use of fondaparinox in this setting? Well, approximately two years ago, the Detroit Medical Center made a switch in our formulary agents for inpatient care for uh, prophylaxis and treatment of venous thromboembolism. We used to use a low molecular weight heparin, and now our formulary uh, preferred agent became fondaparinox. So as a result, there was an increasing number of patients that came to our outpatient anticoagulation clinic that were using fondaparinox um, that, uh, in the interim until they became therapeutic on their warfarin. 
And there are a number of patients in our outpatient anticoagulation clinic that are routinely going for various types of procedures or surgeries. And so consequent to our inpatient formulary change, we had a number of providers that were requesting the use of Fonda Paranox for the periprocedural bridging being done in our outpatient clinic. So this caused the pharmacist in the clinic to question what evidence or guidance really exists for using Fonda Paranox in a perioperative setting as a bridge agent. Um, and at the same time, I noted that the same question was arising from clinicians on various clinical question and answer type forums through professional pharmacy organizations. So this question arose if Fonaparinox were to be used for bridging therapy, how could we use it and use it safely given that it has a very different kinetic profile from low molecular weight heparin? What was the strategy you used to gather information for your article? Well, there are three authors that were involved in performing the literature search and in writing this article. We conducted a thorough search of the literature using electronic databases, in attempt to identify any types of case reports, clinical trials, or other possible information on Fonda Paradox use surrounding surgery. Okay, so what did you find through your search? Well, we found that there was no literature directly related to the perioperative use of Fonda Paradox for bridging. So what we ended up having to do was extract information from what information was available, which included orthopedic surgery trials. There were two case reports of using Fonda Paranox in the perioperative setting. We had to use um, pharmacokinetic data for Fonda Paranox and the information that's included in the package insert of Fonda Paranox. And then we also looked at several of the anesthesiology consensus statements. We extrapolated from these reports and trials as to how to use Fonaparinox in this perioperative setting, and then also applied the extrapolated information from those trials into the framework of the CHESS guidelines for perioperative bridging. What outcome did the findings from your literature search have at your institution? Well, at first, the Detroit Medical Center has a system-wide anticoagulation pharmacist group that meets on a regular basis. So we met and discussed the approach to managing Fonaparinox use perioperatively in our clinics. And what we determined was that maybe we needed an institutional guideline in place to help guide and direct our pharmacists and physicians and other healthcare providers in the system as to how Fonaparinox should or could be used in the perioperative setting. So at the same time that we were um, conducting our literature review and developing the article that's going to be printed in HHP, we developed a guideline that we put forth to our cardiovascular and thrombosis committee at the Detroit Medical Center. There it received approval and then each hospital reviewed it in their medication use committees, and then it went forth to the pharmacy and therapeutics committee at the Detroit Medical Center, and it received final approval for full implementation in June of 2010. So how would you characterize the use of Fonda Paranox for perioperative bridging at your institution before the guideline was developed? 
Well, before the guideline was developed, we were seeing several requests for the use of fondaparinox in our clinic. As I had mentioned before, we did use fondaparinox sometimes for perioperative bridging, both in our inpatient and outpatient settings. On the inpatient side, it would most often occur where a patient was using fondaparinox and then the situation arose where a patient needed to undergo a procedure. In the outpatient clinic, we had a number of scenarios that were occurring that included things like when a patient had no financial resources, yet we had fondaparinox samples available. So how could we use those? A patient, for example, who had a history of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, and therefore we couldn't use low molecular weight heparin. So it was not deemed to be a good option. So how could we use fondaparinox for those patients? Additionally, some physicians had a particular preference for fondaparinox, and we were encountering those types of requests. What we found is that the practice of using fondaparinox was coming up clinically, but we really didn't know how to use it. Therefore, there was clinical decision-making that was occurring that was quite variable. Specifically, we didn't know about the timing of fondaparinox um, surrounding the procedure, when it should be discontinued, and what would be the ideal dose of fondaparinox for perioperative bridging. We were concerned particularly about when to give that last dose of fondaparinox before surgery, and we were concerned about the potential for bleeding if fondaparinox was dosed too soon before surgery. So there was inconsistency in practice before the implementation of the guideline in all these areas that I've highlighted. And how does your institution handle the use of fondaparinox in this setting now? Now there is a guideline that is in place. And what it says is that, first of all, we should use fondaparinox for perioperative bridging only in patients with venous thromboembolism and a history of HIT or antithrombin deficiency. Additionally, fondaparinox should only be considered in patients with adequate renal function and a creatinine clearance of greater than 30 milliliters per minute and a body weight of greater than 50 kilograms. Fondaparinox really is not recommended for use in our institution in any other indications, including patients with mechanical valve replacements or atrial fibrillation. It's our intent that this guideline in our institution will establish that low molecular weight heparin is still a better and more established agent to bridge patients with in the perioperative situation, but fondaparinox should really be restricted to those in whom it's thought to be safe and in whom we cannot reasonably use low molecular weight heparin. So as a result, what we've seen in the short time frame from its implementation is a decreased use and request in our anticoagulation clinic. And you mentioned that the timing for discontinuing fondaparinox prior to procedure was one of your key concerns. How did your guideline address this issue? Yeah, this was the biggest area of concern for us when considering fondaparinox in the perioperative setting. Fondaparinox has an extensive half-life of 17 to 21 hours, and it can take anywhere between two and four days for the drug to fully wash out before a procedure. So we know that the elimination half-life is also increased in those patients that have renal impairment, and if creatinine clearance is less than 50 milliliters per minute, it could take anywhere between four and six days for fondaparinox to fully wash out. If you consider that warfarin needs to be stopped five days in advance of the procedure, it really doesn't seem that reasonable to use fondaparinox before a procedure as there's a similar time frame needed for washout of warfarin and fondaparinox. 
So what our guideline did was we presented three feasible options management of Fonda Paranox before the procedure. The first option was to just simply stop warfarin five days in advance of the procedure and not to give any of the Fonda Paranox before procedure. And this was the preferred option highlighted in our institution's guideline. But the additional um, options are number two, to stop warfarin five days in advance of the procedure and based on the pharmacokinetics of the drug, give the last dose of Fonda Paranox three to five half-lives before. So that would be anywhere between 45 and about 85 hours before, so two to four days. And then um, the third option is to continue warfarin before the procedure, reverse warfarin using vitamin K 24 hours before the procedure, and not to use Fonda Paradox before the procedure. So what has been the pharmacist's perspective of the new protocol? So far, the pharmacists are pleased to have a document to use as reference for how to use Fonaparinox if its use is determined to be appropriate in a patient. And additionally, the document gives the pharmacist something referred to when discussing um, the clinical choice of Fonaparinox with the patient's provider. What has been the reaction of physicians and nursing staff to the new protocol? Overall, it's been very accepted. We had a pretty easy process in going through the various Detroit Medical Center committees in implementing the guideline. During the discussion of those committee meetings, specifically, there was a request for education that came up. Healthcare providers on those committees requested that we provide education surrounding bridging, especially in those groups where it occurs most frequently, such as the GI procedures group. And um, they wanted education for general bridging procedures, but additionally highlighting the Fonda Paranox bridging guideline. Well, if you were to use Fonda Paranox for perioperative bridging, when would you consider using the full dose of the drug in this setting? Well, this is kind of a difficult question to answer. There's really little in the literature to guide the clinician in selection of Fonda Paranox dosing in a, the perioperative setting. So there's really only one case report of Fonda Paranox at a dose of 7.5 milligrams a day for prophylaxis in the perioperative situation. So we discussed this case report of uh, a pregnant patient with antiphospholipid antibody syndrome and who also had a history of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia in our article. Clinically, it might be reasonable to consider full-dose fondoparinox in a patient who is at high risk for thrombosis instead of a low-dose of fondoparinox being like 2.5 milligrams daily. Um, if full-dose fondoparinox were to be used, then I would be most concerned for bleeding surrounding the procedure and want, would want to be sure that any preoperative dose had time to fully wear off and that any postoperative dosing was implemented after hemostasis were adequately achieved. So in this arena, I think it's beneficial to accumulate more literature surrounding the use of Fonda Paranox. Okay. Well, to answer the question posed in your article, do you think that there is a role for Fonda Paranox in perioperative bridging? Yes, I do think that there may be a role, but I think likely its usefulness is limited to those patients that you would not be able to use um, low molecular weight heparin for in perioperative bridging. So our guideline that 
I presented earlier kind of discuss where we believe that those limitations fall. Low molecular weight heparin really offers the advantage of a shorter half-life, and it is partially reversible in the event of bleeding. And evidence supporting its use in perioperative bridging is, of course, greater than that of fondaparinox that I discussed earlier. Additionally, I think that there is a broader set of indications for which low molecular weight has been studied, such as in atrial fibrillation or in patients with mechanical heart valve replacements, as well as venous thromboembolism. And for fondaparinox, really, most of the evidence is concentrated on venous thromboembolism. Um, however, for those patients who do have heparin-induced thrombocytopenia or a history of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia and do need surgery, fondaparinox might be a good cost-effective consideration as an alternative to admitting that patient into the hospital for bridging before and after the procedure. So I think that further consideration of fondaparinox could be given in presence of other disease states such as antithrombin deficiency where unfractionated heparin or low molecular weight heparin are less effective. Additionally, we would only really recommend considering fondaparinox in patients with moderate or high risk for thrombosis because it's likely that those patients who are at low risk of thrombosis would not reap the benefit of bridging similarly to those with um, high-risk thrombosis. Well, thank you for speaking with me today and sharing your experience with us, Dr. Garwood. Yeah, thank you very much. This is Lori Justice, Associate Editor of the American Journal of Health System Pharmacy. I've been speaking with Dr. Candace Garwood about her paper on the role of fondaparinux in perioperative bridging, which will be available as an ahead-of-print article on our website before its print publication in an upcoming issue of AJHP. That concludes this podcast. For more information, please visit www.ajhp.org.